Today's episode is sponsored by Audible. Audible offers a selection of thousands of audiobooks across every genre. As a new member, you can get a 30-day trial subscription free, and you can download and keep one free audiobook. And if you sign up using my special code, audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod, you will contribute $15 towards this podcast, so I can continue to afford half-decent music for my episodes. Support your favorite podcast and get a book of your choice. This episode today talks about an American invasion that doesn't go as planned, so my recommendation is Fiasco, the American Military Adventure in Iraq by Thomas E. Ricks, an on-the-ground account of the first phase of the Iraq War. Ricks goes into the poor decision-making at the top, as well as the consequences at the bottom. Fiasco was a Pulitzer Prize finalist, it's a great listen, and it's free for a first-time listener. So once again, that is audibletrial.com slash unksoldierspod. On with the show. The year, 1899. The place, the Philippines. The United States has taken up the white man's burden. They are here to civilize the people of the Philippine Islands, and the Filipinos beg to differ. This is America's Forgotten War. I'm James Hauser, and welcome to Unknown Soldiers. Welcome back to the Unknown Soldiers Podcast. I am your host, James Hauser, and this is episode 38, The Philippine War Part 2, Shock and All. Last episode was all background, and this one is nothing but action. Today's episode is all about the first phase of the Philippine-American War, the conventional war between the U.S. Army and the Philippine Army of Liberation. Sometimes you just have to deliver freedom at the point of a bayonet and try not to think too hard about the irony of all that. So, it's been two weeks since the last episode, so that means it's time for a recap. Let's do a quick review of what happened in Philippine War Part 1, previously on the Unknown Soldiers podcast. The United States in the 1890s was at a turning point. After a century of relative isolation from international affairs, America's economic potential and restless energy were propelling it to global power. The breaking point came in 1898. Tensions over the status of Cuba and the suspicious explosion of the USS Maine in Havana Harbor ignited the Spanish-American War. The war was a blowout victory for the United States and America's debut as a world power. But in the course of that war, America sent land and naval forces to the Spanish-held Philippines, a mega-diverse region bound together only by Spanish rule and the Catholic Church. But a Philippine revolution broke out in 1896, led by the educated and wealthy elites of Luzon. The revolution's leader, Emilio Aguinaldo, was defeated at first, but he returned with American backing during the Spanish-American War. He reignited the revolution, and they defeated the remaining Spanish forces in the Philippines. The Filipino revolutionaries saw the Americans as saviors and believed that they would grant them their independence. But America had other ideas. President William McKinley and the Progressive Republicans saw the Philippines as a proving ground for American imperialism, a cultural and racial idea that would civilize the so-called lesser races whether they wanted it or not. In the Treaty of Paris in December 1898, Spain officially handed the Philippines over to the United States. 
President William McKinley implored the Filipinos to accept their new status under a policy of benevolent assimilation. But Aguinaldo and his government declared that they would fight for their independence. A tense standoff developed around the capital city of Manila, where the Filipino army surrounded the American defenders. It wasn't a matter of if the war would start, but when. The first shots of the Philippine-American War were fired on the night of February 4th, 1899. And that is literally the moment we left off. So you don't remember any of that. I recommend you go back and check out the last episode. That's the background. We're getting into the fighting today. And last week, I released a short round called Uncle Sam's Imperial Army, which is pretty important for understanding the American soldier, fighting man, Marine of the Philippine War. So I'll give you a chance to go check those out. Three, two, one. All right, guys, we're into it. The latest dispatches from Manila report. This is not just history, but military history. There's some dark and bloody stuff going on. Podcast is PG-13. Language is clean. Content is not. All my sources, including very useful maps, will be posted on my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com. So if you want it, that's where you can find it. Finally, any errors, mispronunciations, or mistakes are my own. Everything I'm telling you is accurate to the best of my knowledge. This was a real story with real people who don't deserve to be unknown soldiers. I introduced the Philippine War Part 1 with a discussion of American image versus reality. And in this episode, we're applying that to warfare. I've talked before about how societies view war in the abstract, their ideal, versus how it functions in reality. I've referred to society's ideal of war as a frame of war. And talking about the frame of war is important because it helps us understand why militaries fight the way they do, why societies react the way they do to certain kinds of warfare, and why they have trouble when it doesn't match the frame. Because Americans, like every society, we have a frame of war. Americans like short, decisive conflicts where one state fights another state, where two uniformed armies engage in open warfare on clear terms. Americans like neat lines on the map and minimal civilian involvement. And most of all, a clear definition of victory. Like Gettysburg, or D-Day, or Desert Storm, force on force, in the open. This is what's called conventional war. But conventional war is not always the reality. Many of America's wars have been unconventional wars, messy with no uniformed enemy, no front line, no clear path to victory, often guerrilla conflicts. And there's not always a clear line between the two. In the American Civil War, there were large-scale battles, but also lots of guerrilla warfare. But there's a reason American memory focuses on the Gettysburg version of the Civil War and not, say, Indian Territory. Because that's not the story we like. That's a much messier story. It doesn't make a good movie. Americans don't want the Indian Territory version of war. They want the Gettysburg version. Americans want the Top Gun version of war. This is the good guy. This is the bad guy. Blow the bad guy up. You win. Much simpler. And when the Philippine War began in 1899, the American frame of war was dominated by a particular image of its last big conflict, the American Civil War. Big charges with flags flying, blue versus gray, neat lines on the map. They had forgotten the other side of the Civil War, the guerrilla warfare, the civilian losses, the devastation. Not for the last time, America forgot the reality and focused on the image. I'm going to make an analogy, an analogy I will come back to at certain points. 
In 2003, United States forces invaded Iraq with a combination of overwhelming firepower and maneuver known as shock and awe, called that in the media. A conventional war, a clean victory, the kind of war we like. But that didn't last long. The unconventional war that followed, the Iraqi insurgency, ended up being much dirtier and ultimately cost much more in blood and treasure. The image of an easy victory in 2003 concealed the reality of a much nastier conflict. Much like the Iraq War, the Philippine-American War would follow this pattern. It had two distinct phases. The first phase, which today's episode focuses on, was the conventional phase. This phase resembled the American frame of war, stand-up battles, fire and movement, flags flying, and the Americans, spoiler alert, dominated. But in the second phase of the war, the Filipinos would fight war within their frame, an unconventional war, a guerrilla war. Just like 2003, the image of victory would melt away into the reality of a messy insurgency. History not repeating itself, but rhyming. Because again, just like 2003, shock and all would be the easy part. After that, things would get ugly. Today, we will continue the story of the Philippine-American War. This episode will focus on the first phase of the war in 1899, when the Filipinos fought the U.S. Army in a stand-up conventional conflict. But this isn't just going to be dates and places and generals. We're going to see the nature of this fighting, how it was on the ground, who won, who lost, and what happened next. And I'll tell you why it matters at the end of our story. I'll tie it all together in part four. You should care, and I'm going to tell you why. And because this is a big tropical imperial invasion, there will be some breaks. Your chance to pause, put up the Christmas lights, go get your flu vaccine, whatever you need to do. So grab your campaign hat, lace up your boots, load some rounds in your crag. It's time to liberate these folks, whether they want to be liberated or not. We're going back on campaign. On February 4th, 1899, Private William W. Grayson of the 1st Nebraska Volunteers fired the shots that started the Philippine-American War. And this is where I left off in the last episode. But we need to backtrack just a little bit before we move on. The circumstances of Private Grayson's actions are almost as controversial as the war itself. First, let's figure out what the situation looked like in February 1899. Remember. In December 1898, the Treaty of Paris that ended the Spanish-American War granted the Philippines to the United States, on paper, but taking possession was another matter. Emilio Aguinaldo's government, the Philippine Republic, refused to accept annexation. They had just ousted the Spanish and they were not willing to trade one colonial master for another. The United States, for its part, refused to acknowledge the legitimacy of Aguinaldo's government. So despite their claims of annexation, actual American control of the Philippines was limited to the capital city of Manila. A U.S. Army force was hunkered down inside that city, encircled on the landward side by the Philippine Army of Liberation. 
The two forces have been in a Mexican standoff for the last six months, ever since the Americans had basically tricked the Filipinos out of taking the city of Manila. The American 8th Corps in the Philippines, that was what was called the 8th Corps, that unit, numbered 21,000 men total, with 2,000 men on a side mission to the south, which we'll get to, 8,000 men inside Manila, and 11,000 holding a loose defensive perimeter outside the city limits. This perimeter resembled a home plate, encircling Manila to the north, east, and south, while Admiral Dewey's fleet still sat an anchor in Manila Bay to the west. The 1st Division, commanded by Brigadier General Thomas M. Anderson, held the southern perimeter around Manila. Major General Arthur MacArthur Jr.'s 2nd Division held the north. The 8th Corps consisted of a few regular army units, like the 3rd Artillery and 14th Infantry, but mostly the state volunteers, like the 1st California, 10th Pennsylvania, 1st Nebraska. MacArthur's division included two regiments that would become famous. Colonel Frederick Funston's 20th Kansas, and Colonel John Stotzenberg's 1st Nebraska, which held the most exposed position, the apex of home plate. The 8th Corps commander was Major General Elwell S. Otis. And I'll tell you this up front. No one likes this dude. No one likes Otis. He has a 0% historical approval rating, both from his peers at the time and from historians ever since. Otis was a Civil War relic, a Gettysburg hero in his day who had dried up into a droopy-looking dude with mutton-chop sideburns. Otis was irritable and moody, a micromanager obsessed with small details. He would spend the war at his desk, never leaving Manila, plowing through paperwork and sending angry messages over the telegraph. Otis would make two major mistakes throughout the campaigns of 1899. First, he underestimated his opponent. Otis dismissed any Filipino resistance as mere banditry, criminal activity against the lawful authority of the United States, a viewpoint he shared with many politicians back home. He called Aguinaldo's government the ladrones, or the thieves, which tells you a lot about how he saw the world. They were trying to steal um, their own country from the Americans, who were, of course, the legal owners. <laughs> Otis believed that the Filipino resistance amounted to a handful of Tagalog troublemakers, and once they were dealt with, the Filipinos would accept American rule. Remember, the Tagalogs are one of the largest ethnic groups in the Philippines, traditionally one of the ruling groups, and they're concentrated in central and southern Luzon. But this assumption led to Otis's second mistake. He greatly underestimated the force he required to win the war. He told Washington that he had all the troops he needed if war did break out. The result was that the U.S. Army in the Philippines was too small for its job, big enough to win battles, but not big enough to control the country, much like American forces in Iraq in 2003. Otis was a sharp contrast to his top subordinate. Major General Arthur MacArthur Jr. was broad and stocky, with glasses and a trim mustache that made him look a little bit like Theodore Roosevelt, like if you just hold up a picture of this guy, he kind of looks like Teddy. MacArthur was a Civil War Medal of Honor recipient and an aggressive, flexible tactician. He was very formal, not much sense of humor, the kind of guy who's smart, and he knows it. He was also extremely arrogant. He had to let you know that he was smart. He shared this quality with his son, the World War II General Douglas MacArthur. Brilliant, but insufferable. MacArthur had a low opinion of Otis. He, he called his boss, A locomotive, 
bottom side up on the track, with its wheels revolving at full speed. <laughs> That's actually a pretty sick burn. Good insult. And unlike Otis to a certain degree, MacArthur perceived that this task would be much harder than his boss thought. He took the Filipinos much more seriously. So these were the guys in charge of the Americans. The Philippine Republic was led by its government at Malolos, 20 miles north of Manila. A whole Congress and justice system and setup fronted by the president, Emilio Aguinaldo. It might seem sometimes like there's only a few guys, but there's like a whole Congress, a whole government that the Philippine Republic has set up. The Philippine Army of Liberation, probably around 30,000 strong, occupied a series of field works and strong points around Manila. Its field commander was General Antonio Luna, a fierce leader with major anger management issues. Luna was trying to turn the Filipino recruits into a disciplined army, but this was easier said than done, as we will see. So the Manila standoff continued. And guys, keep in mind, this drama was currently limited to just the little area around the capital on the big island of Luzon. When I said Otis underestimated the challenge American forces faced, I would like you to consider that the only place the United States held currently was Manila. One city on one island in an archipelago of over 7,000 islands, large, small, and teeny tiny. Otis assumed that once Aguinaldo's army was dispersed, occupying the rest of these islands would be like walking in and sitting on the couch. This would be incorrect. Some of those islands were the Visayas, the central Philippines, hundreds of islands, large and small. This included Pane, a large triangular island whose main city was Iloilo. Otis sent 2,000 men under Brigadier General Marcus Miller to sail down and try to occupy Iloilo, which is one of the main trading ports in the region. But Miller found the city held by Filipino guerrillas. And when he asked for permission to land, they said no. <laughs> So General Miller's men sat on the transports outside of Loilo, picking their noses, just like the American troops in Manila. So by February 1899, there had still been no major fighting, no real engagements between Americans and Filipinos, but it was coming, and everybody sort of knew it. The McKinley administration tried to get Aguinaldo's government to accept benevolent assimilation, like, Look, guys, we don't want to fight you. We just want to civilize you. The Filipinos were like, we didn't ask for your civilization, and so on. The tension grew around Manila. American and Filipino soldiers traded taunts, insults, shouts. There were a couple of stabbing incidents and even some shooting. Otis followed McKinley's orders not to provoke an engagement, convinced that the Filipinos would eventually see reason and accept American empire. Aguinaldo and his officers tried to avoid provoking the Americans. They were building up their forces, but still refusing to pull the trigger. Some of Aguinaldo's advisors wanted to go for it. They proposed starting an uprising inside the city, along with an attack on the lines outside. Aguinaldo put a pin in that idea. We'll hold on to that. That might not be necessary yet. Americans and Filipinos waited and waited until the tension finally snapped. Both sides blamed the other for what happened next. American official histories claimed it was an intentional Filipino provocation, part of a planned attack. The Filipinos and some American historians claimed that Otis did it, started it on purpose. But historical evidence says otherwise. What happened on February 4, 1899 was an accident, but an inevitable result of the constant tension 
between the forward lines. Colonel John M. Stotzenberg's 1st Nebraska Volunteers held the most exposed portion of the American line northeast of Manila. The soldiers in their blue flannel shirts and campaign hats patrolled the muddy roads, peered into the darkness, fingered the triggers on their Springfields, and watched the Filipinos across the San Juan River. There have been several incidents in the last few days, lots of macho posturing, threats, a few scuffles, so tensions were high on the night of February 4th, 1899. Private William W. Grayson of the 1st Nebraska was 23 years old. You see pictures of this guy. He looks like someone who would like work at a bowling alley. Grayson was just a dude who had joined the army for fun and adventure and found neither. He was bored, he was homesick, and like a bunch of other soldiers, he wanted to see some action. So maybe his trigger finger was itchy. Maybe he was afraid. Maybe he was just an idiot. Maybe it legitimately wasn't his fault. At around 8 p.m. that night, Grayson and two comrades were on patrol. The night was humid, dark, and full of insects. They ran into three Filipino soldiers coming towards them. What happened next remains unclear. American accounts claim that Grayson yelled for the Filipinos to halt. When they failed to stop and they taunted him, he yelled again. When they still didn't stop, then he raised his rifle and opened fire. The Filipinos claimed that Grayson and his comrades opened fire without warning. Either way, soon bullets were flying in both directions. Grayson sprinted back to his command post, yelling, Line up, fellas! The Negroes are in here all through these lines! He didn't say Negroes. He said a different word that I'm not going to say. But soon firing spread all along the lines. Both sides shot blindly at fleeting shadows in the bush, and soon enough the rumble of artillery joined the rifle cracks. Ready or not, the Battle of Manila and the Philippine-American War was on. Again, both sides claimed that the enemy had premeditated the battle, but no one was really prepared for a fight. That's the evidence. Otis had reinforcements on the way. His orders were to bring the Filipinos around peacefully, and Grayson just shot at some dude. That's what started everything. Aguinaldo and most of his commanders were back in Malolos, or on leave. They were caught completely by surprise. They weren't anywhere near the fight. The simplest explanation is that tension had been so high for so long that a single incident was enough to spark a spontaneous battle. The fighting on the outskirts prompted some Filipinos within Manila to riot, and soon they were setting buildings on fire and randomly shooting at American soldiers. The night was alive with flames, gunshots, and blazes of orange light from the artillery outside the city. There was a legitimate urban battle going on inside Manila. General Robert P. Hughes, the Provost Marshal, took charge and organized fire brigades and roving patrols throughout the streets. The city almost caught fire before Hughes' troops managed to suppress the uprising and put out the flames. In the meantime, the chaos continued on the front lines as the Filipinos launched reckless assaults on the American positions. But the absence of their commanders meant that the Filipino attacks were unfocused and uncoordinated, confused and stumbling around in the darkness, and they failed to break the American line. Aguinaldo hurried back when he heard about the fighting, and he sent a message to General Otis informing him that the shooting had been against his orders and asked for a ceasefire trying to avoid a battle before diplomacy could work, or more cynically, before he was ready for one. But Otis refused. It was too late. War was here, and one good fight would break Aguinaldo's army. 
Otis replied to Aguinaldo. Fighting, having begun, must go on to the grim end. There would be no ceasefire. It was on. As February 5th dawned, General MacArthur prepared for a counterattack. General MacArthur on the northern side of the city. He had had contingency orders in place for weeks, spelling out exactly what to do in case a fight broke out. On order, his men were to assault and seize the enemy positions. Once he had permission from Otis, MacArthur sent his second division forward according to this pre-planned attack. And it seemed like a bad idea. The Filipino positions were imposing, well-built earthworks with artillery and obstacles. But MacArthur's men surged over the Filipino line surprisingly easily. The Americans advanced in loose lines, firing volleys and sprinting from cover to cover. MacArthur had trained his troops extremely well in modern tactics. This looked nothing like his Civil War glory days. The 1st Nebraska captured Blockhouse 7 and pushed over the San Juan Bridge. Colonel Fred Funston's 20th Kansas pushed up the beaches of Manila Bay, assisted by naval gunfire from Admiral Dewey's warships. The Filipinos put up a stiff fight near the Chinese cemetery, firing from behind tombstones and pinning down the 1st Montana, before the 10th Pennsylvania ran them out with a screaming bayonet charge. By the end of February 5th, the Americans had achieved a complete breakthrough. The Army of Liberation had been routed. The story was similar in the South. General Anderson, unlike MacArthur, had not prepared a battle plan, but his forces broke through the Filipino lines nevertheless. Idaho and Washington regiments pushed their foes into the Pasig River, shooting hundreds as they tried to escape across the flow. Anderson noted in his report, The movement began at 8.20 a.m. with a rush over the creek on our front, a cheer and rattling volleys as the whole line advanced, not by rushes, but with a rush. The insurgent line fell back before our advance, fighting, however, with spirit. The rice fields in our front were intersected with little irrigating dikes, and behind each of these a stand was attempted, the Filipinos firing from behind them. The Idaho regiment made a turn to the left, charging the redoubt, carrying it at the point of the bayonet, and driving a regiment of insurgents to the bank of the river. Because of his lack of planning, Anderson's men ended the day disorganized, scattered, with many regiments out of contact and having to find their way back. It was just not a well-planned attack, and it could have cost the Americans dearly. But it hadn't. The Battle of Manila, February 4th through 5th, 1899, was the largest battle of the Philippine-American War. First battle, largest battle. The Americans had routed the Army of Liberation. Official American casualties come out to about 55 killed and 204 wounded. The Filipinos casualties numbered maybe 1,000 dead, possibly more. 20 to 1 casualties against the defender. This was shocking casualty ratio for, again, an assault across open ground at a fortified position, the thing that's supposed to be really difficult. Only eight months earlier, the Battle of San Juan Hill in the Spanish-American War had been much bloodier for the Americans. In the words of that battle's most famous veteran, Theodore Roosevelt, To carry earthworks on foot, when these earthworks are held by unbroken infantry armed with the best modern rifles, is a serious task. But at Manila, the Americans won an overwhelming victory against a defender with light casualties. And guys, this would be a consistent trend. Whenever Americans faced Filipinos in a conventional battle, they almost always won. So the question is, 
Why were the Filipinos so outmatched, even with all these advantages? Why did they lose the Battle of Manila and most of the battles of 1899? The Filipinos did have a lot of advantages at Manila. They were in a strong defensive position, they outnumbered the Americans, and they had access to modern rifles and artillery. In theory, they were fighting to defend their homelands from the invader. The Americans were inexperienced, and their tactics were kind of clumsy, just random frontal attacks. Against a more dangerous opponent, they would have been slaughtered. See for instance the first few American battles of World War I, where they tried this against the Germans and the Germans didn't play. You might think the Americans would have a firepower advantage, and later on, this would be the case. But at this point in the war, the Filipinos actually had a slight edge. American regular units carried the Krag Jorgensen bolt-action rifle, a flawed design with a kind of terrible reloading system. Most of the American state volunteers didn't even have that. The first Nebraska still carried the old black powder Springfield. In contrast, many Filipinos carried the Mauser, a German design superior to the Krag or the Springfield that they had captured from the Spanish. The real difference was in the men behind the guns. American marksmanship was superb, another trend throughout the war. Many of them were volunteers from the western states where most boys grew up with a rifle in their hands, and regular army units practiced marksmanship on a routine basis. The Filipinos, with limited ammunition and no real tradition of local firearms ownership, displayed consistently poor marksmanship. But that doesn't quite explain it. It wasn't just, I'm a better shot than you. This doesn't, that's not how battles are normally decided. It had to be more than that. The real difference between the two armies was in those intangible factors. Leadership, discipline, unit cohesion, and morale. The U.S. Army followed a strict ranked-based hierarchy that they all knew and understood, and many of its leaders were trained professionals. Some, like MacArthur, were excellent at their jobs. And even the volunteer officers were generally competent by now at basic military tasks. And the American rank and file had extremely, ludicrously high morale. They were eager to fight after six months of doing nothing and missing most of the Spanish-American War. The Americans were full of that restless energy we talked about in part one, that patriotic fever, that sense of adventure, that zeal for challenge and combat. They were propelled by their heroic image of war, the romantic vision of the Civil War that their fathers had fought. And of course, many of them had a cultural and racial sense of superiority over their enemies. All this probably accounts, at least a little bit, for the reckless courage American soldiers demonstrated in the Philippine War. They charged into battle like they were hyped up on Mountain Dew and Victorian-era racism, not really believing anything could stand in their way. Sometimes it got them into trouble. They were lucky they weren't fighting the more dangerous enemy. But most of the time it gave them just this aggressive psychological edge over the Filipinos. For whatever reason, this edge existed, and it's pretty evident in most of these battles. Now for the Filipinos. Politics in the Philippines have usually been defined by familial and personal relationships more than legal ones. Filipino society in the 19th century was based on something often called the patron-client relationship, an informal hierarchy of mutually beneficial connections. Filipino peasants, the clients, paid homage to a patron, usually a landowner or local elite, a social superior. And when the Philippine Revolution's leaders, these landowners and local elites, the patrons, needed to raise military units, they called out their clients. 
So instead of a professional fighting force, even a semblance of one, the Filipino Army of Liberation was a collection of local militias with local loyalties, their leaders chosen based on family or political connections. Filipino leadership was fractured due to ethnic, regional, and political rivalries. Every army is ultimately a product of its society, and the Army of Liberation was representative of the still very diverse, very regionalized Philippines without a widespread sense of collective identity. Remember, the revolutionary leaders, the Ilustrados, had this idea of Filipino nationalism, like this was an elite idea, but the masses didn't hold the same idea. Almost no one else at this time really believed in a Philippine nation. So when it came down to it, there was just no glue holding the Army of Liberation together. Your average soldier was just not willing to stand and die without a unifying cause. Throughout the campaigns of 1899, Americans observed that the Filipinos would fight ferociously for a while, but when things got really tough, they would retreat to fight another day. They were fighting to the extent that the patron-client relationship obligated them to. When it got too dangerous, well, I'm not obligated anymore, I'm retreating. The Filipinos were definitely brave. After all, many of them did fight and die. Many units would display astonishing fortitude and valor. There was nothing inherently less combative or less brave about the Filipino than the American. But for most of them, there was just no military discipline or sense of unifying purpose to persuade them to stand their ground. Think of like Washington's army in the early days of the American Revolution versus the British. They ran away all the time. The Americans in this war had discipline, high morale, a centralized command structure, and a sense of unity. The Filipinos did not. And that was why the United States would dominate the conventional phase of the Philippine War. But when things got unconventional, those weaknesses were turned into strengths. The patron-client relationship, local loyalties and ties, hit-and-run tactics, political connections, and the willingness to fight another day. These were all weaknesses in this kind of war, a war fought within the American frame. But when the war turned into an insurgency, all of those weaknesses were turned into strengths. Keep that in mind. This was a, the Philippines had a social system and military mindset inherently better suited to guerrilla war. That was when things would get tough. But not yet. The Battle of Manila was over. The Philippine-American War's first phase, the conventional phase, had begun with a crushing American victory. It was time to bring the Filipinos some freedom, whether they wanted it or not. So, it is the year 1899. What's going on in the rest of the world right now? When is this? So, ragtime music is all the rage in America, with Scott Joplin copywriting his classic Maple Leaf Rag, while John Philip Sousa publishes his new march, Hands Across the Sea. Leo Tolstoy publishes his last novel, Resurrection, and German Count Ferdinand von Zeppelin creates the first airship. 
In Britain, Joseph Conrad publishes Heart of Darkness, a critique of imperialism, the inspiration for the film Apocalypse Now, and a book with a bunch of themes that could be well applied to the Philippine-American War. Hope that helps. In the aftermath of the Battle of Manila, the Americans were optimistic. Some people really thought that after one good defeat, the Filipinos would just roll over, see reason, and submit. Good work, boys. War's over. General Otis certainly thought that, that one good punch would just do the insurgents in. And when this didn't happen after the first battle, well, the next battle would do it. Or the next one. Or the next one. Otis had violated Sun Tzu's advice to know your enemy. He believed that a few Tagalog bandits, aka Aguinaldo and his government, were all that kept the resistance alive, give them a good smack and the war would be won. But the problem was, the resistance to American occupation and American rule ran much, much deeper than just Aguinaldo and his faction. The spring campaign of 1899 would see the Americans try to destroy the Philippine insurrection, as they called it, in one stand-up, firepower-heavy, conventional battle after another. Essentially, the 1899 version of shock and all. And that's the American image of war. Big decisive battles where one there's one clear winner, one clear loser, and the, everything's decided. The enemy's beaten and the war's over. But what if the enemy refused to play along? A few days after the Battle of Manila, Otis ordered MacArthur's 2nd Division to move north towards Luzon's Central Valley. This region contained Aguinaldo's capital of Malolos, the bulk of General Luna's Army of Liberation, and the Philippines' economic heartland. Central Luzon Valley, where the railroad ran from Manila to Dagupan, was like the most fertile, most economically profitable region of the entire Philippines. MacArthur's first objective was Caloocan, a few miles north of Manila. Caloocan was one terminus of the 150-mile-long Manila-Dagupan Railroad, the only railroad in the Philippines, a vital logistic line if the Americans wanted to control the territory and carry the war into the interior of Luzon. The Battle of Caloocan began on February 10, 1899. MacArthur stood on the ramparts of the Chinese church, observing with binoculars to the north as artillery and naval gunfire pounded the Filipino positions. The American infantry rushed forward in the assault, campaign hats bobbing through tropical bushes. An American reporter named John F. Bass recalled the scene. With each breath of powder and smoke, our men seemed to gain new enthusiasm. Curiously enough, as the excitement grew, the men seemed to notice the bullets less and less. The Americans assaulted recklessly, almost firing from the hip, barely even paying attention to the Filipino fire, and concentrating their lethal, accurate rifle fire on their enemy positions. The Filipinos panicked and ran in the face of the reckless American charge, while Caloocan blazed with the fire of the battle and the bombardment. John Bass reported, In the fading light of the day, the dry Nipa huts set afire, shot great gothic spires of flame into the sky. The main street of the town was roasting hot. Homeless dogs ran howling through the streets. Oh yeah, by the way, any town this war passed over would pretty much end up like this. Lots of burning in the Philippine-American War. Lots of property destruction. Lots of careless use of firepower on the part of the Americans. Get used to it. When the Americans captured Caloocan, lots of locomotives and rail cars fell into their hands. Within a few days, MacArthur's troops were assembling a makeshift armored train armed with rapid-fire naval cannons and Gatling guns. 
MacArthur would use it as his mobile headquarters for the rest of the campaign. And now the Americans had a solid logistic line to carry the war north against Aguinaldo and his capital of Malolos. But Otis's army was just too small to hold the ground it had taken. At the same time as MacArthur's advance, General Lloyd Wheaton led another expedition to the south, supported by gunboats armed again with Gatling guns and light cannons. Wheaton won every stand-up battle he fought, gunboats rolling down the Pasig River, just blowing villages apart. But as soon as the Americans passed an area by, the Filipinos came out of hiding to ambush the supply trains. The Americans were discovering an all-too-familiar trend. Filipino combatants that shouted, Amigo, when the Americans came through, only to take up arms once they were passed and shoot at whatever they could find. Americans came to use Amigo as a slang term for a duplicitous Filipino that probably ought to be shot just on principle. Such conduct of dressing civilian clothes and ambushing troops from the bushes did not fit with the American frame of war. Wheaton burned several villages to the ground in frustration and reprisal for ambushes, the first of many atrocities that Americans would commit in the Philippines. But the problem was that Otis just didn't have any troops to hold the ground even if he advanced over it, and his numbers were about to decline. The enlistments of his state volunteers, the bulk of his army, were set to expire in the summer of 1899. They had only enlisted for the Spanish-American War, and that war was over, so it was almost time. So Otis called a halt to any further advances until reinforcements arrived. MacArthur grumbled, but complied. The spring offensive would have to wait. If Otis had problems, the Filipinos had bigger ones. Fair warning, everything about the Philippine Republic in this period is controversial. It has been argued to death by Filipino historians ever since. Kind of weirdly, most Philippine historiography focuses less, focuses less on Americans versus Filipinos than Filipinos versus other Filipinos. And this is valid, because the divisions within Aguinaldo's government would ultimately be its doom. The losses at Manila and Caloocan had been devastating blows to Filipino morale. Aguinaldo was shocked by the ferocity of the American attack and appalled that the Army of Liberation didn't seem able to stop them. The Spanish had never fought like this, but Aguinaldo's problems weren't just military, but political. On the one hand, he had the land-owning upper class, including most of the Ilustrados, the Philippine Revolution's founding fathers. Aguinaldo's government had been designed as an elite republic, and these guys were the elites. These guys were the ones in power in the, in the Republican government. But faced with a massive war and military defeat, lots of the Ilustrados were like, eh, maybe the Americans aren't so bad, you know? Let's compromise. Stop this war before it gets out of control. We won't be independent, but we can get something out of it. The radicals, on the other hand, were willing to sacrifice everything for independence. Men like Apolinario Mabini, the wheelchair-bound patriot and true believer, who some called the brains of the revolution. Mabini said, War is the last resource left to us for the salvation of our country and our national honor. Let us fight while a grain of strength is left to us, and generations to come, praying over our tombs, will shed for us tears of love and gratitude. Hmm. Sounds a little bit like Teddy Roosevelt, to be honest. You notice I'm going to keep hitting this theme that the Americans and the Filipinos really weren't that different. Mabini proposed that Aguinaldo base the war on the people, a mass uprising. The elites can't win you the war. The people can win you the war. 
But in return, the Republic would have to promise them equal rights, like voting rights and education and land reform, in return. Give them something. Otherwise, to lots of Filipinos, independence would just mean meet the new boss same as the old boss. If the elites remained in power, if the social structure remained the same after independence, their lives wouldn't really get any better. What were they fighting for? Mabini said, give these guys something to fight for. The elites hated Mabini and the radicals. They were more scared of their own lower classes than they were of the Americans. If they had to choose between preserving the social order or Philippine independence, they were probably going to go with the social order. Between their fortunes and their freedom, buddy, freedom don't pay the bills. Aguinaldo had to walk a tightrope. He had to keep the elites on his side because they had all the money and resources. And as long as the patron-client system was still a big factor in Filipino society, they had all these followers that they could bring into the war effort. But he also had to get the masses on his side because they were the rank and file. He had to motivate them and give them something to fight for. So how do you do both? How do you get both the 1% and the 99% on board when both are essential to win the war? General Antonio Luna thought he saw the way to win the war. Brutal discipline. Luna is controversial. He was famously angry, temperamental, a loose cannon, but he was also the closest thing the Filipinos had to a real general. He wasn't a Tagalog like most of Aguinaldo's government, but an Ilocano from northwestern Luzon, which put him at odds with Aguinaldo's 99% Tagalog ministers. Luna tried to persuade Aguinaldo that the army needed reform, discipline, and to be unified. He wanted to forge a united army, a true Philippine army, free of all the ethnic and regional problems. Luna wanted to be the Philippines' George Washington, the military leader that could use the army to forge a nation. But there were two major issues with this. First, centralizing the army and getting rid of all those regional and ethnic issues would mean that the local elites and the Ilustrados would have to cede power to Luna. And Luna, problem number two, was a raving tyrant. His ideas for imposing discipline sound like something from the Soviet Union, like flogging, mass punishment, or straight up executing anyone who retreated. The soldiers had a nickname for Antonio Luna, Articulo Uno, or Article One, the death sentence. Luna tried to revitalize the Army of Liberation by sheer weight of toxic leadership. This did not work and caused some people to wonder if maybe Luna wasn't more trouble than he was worth. On February 22nd, Luna launched a counterattack against MacArthur's lines near Caloocan. It was supposed to be coordinated with a major uprising inside Manila itself. The uprising went off, and it took the U.S. Army a lot of street fighting and house-to-house -house combat to suppress it. But for some reason, the attack miscarried outside the city, which was a major missed opportunity. The problem wasn't just American firepower, though that definitely didn't help, but a lack of cooperation and discipline across the Filipino army. In one incident, the Tagalog Cavite Battalion, Aguinaldo's personal unit, refused to attack without orders from Aguinaldo himself, even when Luna was begging them to attack. Luna blamed the Cavite Battalion for the defeat and had them disarmed and disgraced. This helped create another major rift between Luna and the educated Tagalog elite of the Republic, including President Aguinaldo. So for the campaigns of 1899, we've been focused on Luzon and the area outside Manila so far. And to be fair, this was the main theater of the conventional war. This was where the big action was taking place. But there was all kinds of crazy stuff going on in the Visayas, the central Philippines. 
Each of the Visayas, each island was its own separate conflict. These events mainly took place on the islands of Pane, Negros, and Cebu. I'm not going to go into all of them too much because there's so much. Aguinaldo tried to bring the islands under his authority, but the local leaders only paid lip service to his regime. After all, his Tagalog-dominated elite government didn't speak for the lower classes. It didn't speak for the Cebuanos or the Ilongos or the Capiseños. They were fighting their own war. Diversity is natural. Uniformity is weird. And nothing would be uniform about the diverse conflicts taking place in the Visayas. Otis figured the Visayas would be a good side project, a great place to demonstrate the benefits of benevolent assimilation, like, okay, Luzon's on fire, maybe these islands will be pro-American. As it turned out, no. Each of the islands was its own boiling bucket of crazy. America goes, maybe these hornets' nests are empty. Nope, nope, no, not empty, angry hornets. Example one, Pane. This was where those troops had been waiting on their transports before the war began. When he heard of the Battle of Manila and knew that the war was started, General Miller assaulted the city of Iloilo on February 10th, but naval gunfire burned it to the ground by accident. Oops. Now Miller had a ruined city and a handful of men to conquer an island the size of Jamaica. The people of Pane, the Ilongos, rejected both the Americans and Aguinaldo's government and founded their own independent Federal Republic of the Visayas. So despite a few small victories, most of Pane remained ungovernable by the end of 1899. God, was every island going to be like this? Yes, yes they were. Example 2. Negros. The elites of the big island of Negros were surprisingly pro-American. The elites were pro-American because the Americans weren't their biggest problem. That would be the Dios Dios, also known as the Babilanes, a pre-existing religious uprising from the Spanish period. The Babilanes were led by a mystical leader named Papa Isio, who promised freedom from the rich elites, land redistribution, abolition of debt, the second coming of Jesus, and probably free t-shirts. The Babilanes were rooted in folk Catholicism and local traditions that had nothing to do with Aguinaldo's government. Their main targets were not the Americans, but the rich Filipino elites. So for the rest of 1899, U.S. forces would be fighting Catholic religious fanatics in the hills and swamps of Negros, but they were also fighting a guerrilla movement that was essentially just a massive bandit gang. You gotta imagine these soldiers like, guys, what is going on down here? Oh, and they're also fighting some Aguinaldo-backed guerrillas, and they're also fighting some guerrillas that align themselves with the Federal Republic of the Visayas. So yeah, like four different guerrilla factions on Negros. But surprisingly, Negros ended up being a success story. By the end of 1899, most of the violence had been subdued and civil government had been established. This was achieved, notably, with the cooperation of the locals, including the lower classes, who didn't want a bunch of crazy zealots burning down their outhouses. The Americans wanted Negros because they were the least crazy option. Example 3. Cebu, with a population of 500,000 people. Otis only had a few companies of the 23rd Infantry to e even commit to Cebu, and this was not enough. Cebu's local leaders made promises to the Americans, then funded the guerrillas behind their backs. American attempts to suppress the guerrillas all came up empty, and the resistance on Cebu was actively getting worse by the end of 1899. Only 2,000 American soldiers in total were committed to Pane, Negros, and Cebu, each of which was larger than Rhode Island. I'm scratching the surface of this, guys. It gets wild. My point is the war's complexity. 
the Americans confronted 7,000 different islands, each with unique problems that would have to be pacified one by one. Diversity is natural. The situation in the Visayas boded very ill for America's image of war. American reinforcements began to arrive in the Philippines in March 1899, and they included one of the most famous generals of the war. MacArthur had been the youngest regimental commander in the Civil War, but Major General Henry Ware Lawton had been the second youngest. He was already legendary as the army officer who had pursued the Apache chief Geronimo back in the 1880s. And in March 1899, he became, alongside MacArthur, Otis's other major field commander. Lawton was tall and handsome, gray-haired with a trimmed white mustache. He was bold, almost reckless, always at the front lines, very much a soldier's general. He almost seemed like an old crusader knight dashing around his black horse with his gleaming white pith helmet. He was a much better fit for America's romantic image of war than the desk-bound Otis or the cold professional MacArthur. But Lawton did not share MacArthur's talent for careful planning, and his tactics were impulsive and sloppy. Lawton was full of energy, but he, this did not translate to the nuts and bolts of generalship. He was decent at the shooty part, but bad at everything else. He had been removed from his command in Cuba after a week-long drinking binge the year previously, and he was desperately, graspingly ambitious. He believed he deserved Otis's job, and he undercut his boss every step of the way. So now that we have our three American generals on board, let's spell them out. MacArthur, not perfect, nerdy and uncharismatic, but competent and professional. Lawton, narcissistic and melodramatic, good at the shooty part, bad at everything else. And their boss, Otis, the desk-bound micromanager, delusional and unlikable. The dynamic seems to have been that Otis and Lawton spent the whole campaign screaming and throwing things at each other, while MacArthur was the nerdy kid with his head down and his eyes on his own paper. MacArthur didn't like Otis either, but he had the good sense to be quiet about it. Lawton expected an important job. Instead, Otis sent him on diversionary strikes to the south along the shores of Laguna de Bay. Lawton carried these operations out with a decent amount of energy, busting up local Filipino units and capturing Santa Cruz. But he had to retreat back to Manila and give these areas back up because there just weren't enough American troops to hold them. By late March, MacArthur finally had the strength to attack. He would advance north up the railroad against Aguinaldo's capital of Malolos, hopefully destroying the Army of Liberation, capturing Aguinaldo's government, or both. Shock and all was back on the menu, boys. The Malolos campaign began on March 24, 1899, with MacArthur's two brigades conducting a pincer movement to try and trap their opponent. But the assault bogged down immediately. Filipino resistance was difficult enough, but the environment was the real nightmare. The central Luzon plain was full of rice paddies and marshes and rivers, and the Americans slogged through mud up to their knees. What was supposed to be a road on the map turned out to be a trail, if you were lucky. The heat was stifling and oppressive, a miserable humid fog. The Americans were racked by tropical diseases like malaria, typhoid, and dysentery. They were seared by sun, parched by thirst, and the damp climate caused the blue flannel shirts to rot on their backs. One officer described a single day's march for his company. They woke up in a torrential downpour and moved on after a breakfast of dry hardtack and coffee. The sun beat down on them like a drum. They were so desperate for water they drank from ponds full of scum and cow poop. 
They had to constantly pull their legs from the gluey mud of the rice fields. Men collapsed from disease, heat stroke, or sheer exhaustion. By the end of the march, only 23 men were still standing from a company of 90. So when General Otis complained that MacArthur was taking too long, the enemy was going to get away, MacArthur was like, you want to come down here and take a look? <laughs> but Otis never left Manila. He never left his desk. And the Filipinos turned every river crossing, every drainage ditch, every small force into a strong point. The campaign was not one big battle, it was a continuous series of small unit actions ranging from ambushes and sniping to full-on engagements. General Luna ordered scorched earth tactics and the Filipinos lit villages on fire ahead of the American advance. The Filipinos held trenches against repeated American assaults, but fell back under concentrated artillery and Gatling gun fire. They could slow the Americans, but they couldn't stop them. On March 27th, Aguinaldo himself led a determined stand at the Marilao River. Here, the 20th Kansas under Colonel Frederick Funston made one of the war's most celebrated river crossings. The Kansans blazed away at the Filipinos across the 80-yard wide river with their Springfields. A brave lieutenant and four other soldiers swam across the river, captured a raft, and towed it back. Colonel Funston and 22 volunteers crossed on the raft, and Funston led a reckless assault that sent the Filipinos into retreat. Funston and two of his men received the Medal of Honor for this action. The Marilao River could have held the Americans up for days, but it had been breached in a single attack. One more example of American aggression and initiative winning the day. On March 31st, MacArthur's division entered the capital of Malolos. What was left of it because Luna had set the city on fire behind him. The campaign was once again a technical American success. MacArthur had taken his objective, but the Army of Liberation and the Philippine Republic just retreated up the railroad, living to fight another day. Another great victory that still didn't end the war. MacArthur understood the dilemma. He said, A well-planned, slow-moving battle line directed as if to meet a well-trained enemy is not successful against a guerrilla enemy who simply moves out of the way. MacArthur wanted to keep moving north, but Otis once again called a halt. MacArthur protested, but Otis may have been right. The 2nd Division had suffered 56 killed and 478 wounded in the Malolos campaign, relatively high losses, and 1 out of 6 soldiers were sick with some kind of disease. After a month to refit, MacArthur moved north again. On April 27th, he took Calumpit, then San Fernando on May 5th. Each of these battles followed the same pattern as the Malolos campaign. I could describe each of them here, but that would take a long time. MacArthur's troops slogged forward along the railroad, blasting away with rifles, pulling up artillery and Gatling guns to suppress their enemy, launching flanking maneuvers. And the Filipinos always managed to escape. It was shock and all. The Filipinos never could hold their ground, but the Americans were so slowed down by the terrain, the environment, and the weather that they could never really trap them and destroy them. The spring campaign was full of hollow American victories. The Filipinos even had some moments of glory. On April 23rd, the young General Gregorio del Pilar made his stand at a river crossing called King Gua. He faced American cavalry led by MacArthur's chief engineer, Major J. Franklin Bell, a future U.S. Army chief of staff and very important in a couple of future episodes. But Gregorio del Pilar is also famous, the romantic Filipino hero of the war, the boy general. Gregorio del Pilar was 24 years old. Del Pilar's resistance stopped Bell's cavalry in its tracks. 
up came Colonel John Stotzenberg's 1st Nebraska, Private Grayson, who had started this whole thing, still in its ranks. Stotzenberg led a near-suicidal bayonet charge that finally secured the river crossing, but he was killed by a bullet to the heart and later made a martyr by American newspapers at home. As MacArthur advanced along the railroad, General Lawton spearheaded the parallel drive to the east against the town of San Isidro. Lawton argued non-stop with Otis, whining about how his advance should be the main effort, and he ran his troops ragged, outrunning his logistics in a desire to close with the enemy. By the middle of May, Lawton's division was riddled with disease and exhaustion, and had accomplished basically nothing. That was Lawton, good at the shooty part, bad at everything else. But the Philippine Republic was taking these blows hard. No matter how many beatings General Luna dished out, somehow morale did not improve. And Aguinaldo's political position was disintegrating. After the series of losses, especially at Malolos, many of the Ilustrados, again, the Philippine founding fathers, had started to go over to the Americans. They were looking for peace and trying to end the war before they lost everything. Soon, many of the Ilustrados were in Manila, forming a pro-American party that favored reconciliation. Imagine during the American Revolution or something, like half the Continental Congress going over to the British. You know, I for one welcome our new burger-eating overlords. Aguinaldo was getting desperate. He sent messages to Otis proposing a ceasefire, but Otis turned him down time and again. There was even a Philippine commission of civilians sent by President McKinley who wanted to negotiate with Aguinaldo, but Otis kept them from interfering. It didn't help that people like Mabini and the Radicals were still ranting about fighting to the last drop of Filipino blood. The elite Filipino faction, led by men like Felipe Buencamino, was fed up with the Radicals' misbehavior. They decided that Mabini's radicalism was dooming their chances of ending the war, so they engineered his removal from the government. But this put them in the crosshairs of General Luna. General Luna had displayed remarkable courage during all these battles, getting nearly killed several times, but his unstable behavior continued to pose problems. Luna refused to consider a settlement with the Americans and called anyone who did a traitor. He even got into violent confrontations with the Republic's po political leaders, including Buencamino. Luna was starting to go too far. Soon, Aguinaldo would have to deal with the Republic's best and worst general one way or another. But by the end of May 1899, MacArthur had to call a halt. The 2nd Division had fought 18 major engagements with 53 killed and 353 wounded for an advance of 40 miles. Very light combat losses, but disease and exhaustion had taken a much higher toll. On May 12th, the 2nd Division had 45% of its soldiers on the sick list. The state volunteers were preparing to go home. The Filipino army was still not defeated, and monsoon season was on its way, making any major movements impossible until late autumn. Shock and all had failed. Bad roads, logistic issues, weather, climate, Filipino resistance, and especially the lack of sufficient forces had combined to thwart a quick American victory. It was time to rest, wait for the rain to stop, and see what the summer would bring.
Anyone who has spent summer in East or South Asia has experienced the monsoon. Torrential downpours flood the rivers, soak the landscape, turn the roads into mud. For the Philippines, monsoon season is May to October. The U.S. Army in the Philippines was already short on supplies and manpower, having trouble with its logistics and transport. And when the roads turned into rivers, it made all those problems worse. Large-scale movement was virtually impossible. So in May 1899, General Elwell S. Otis decided to pause the campaign, rebuild his forces, and once the rainy season was over, it would be game on. Now this did not mean there wasn't still fighting. American and Philippine forces still fought constant skirmishes and even a couple of large-scale battles, all over Luzon and the Visayas. It's just that half the time they were doing it while the sky was trying to drown them. Men fought from trenches waist-deep in water, slogged around in rivers of mud, and stalked each other through a pitch-black rainforest, with the water drumming into the trees over their heads. American morale began to sink. The stalemate was frustrating for many, particularly General Henry Lawton. Lawton's generalship had been on display in a recent campaign south of Manila. He won one of the war's largest battles at Zapote Bridge on June 13, 1899, but then wore his division out in pointless marches and lost control of his logistics again. The most he accomplished was blowing up a bunch of villages with gunboats with cannons and gatling guns. Again. See, good at the shooty part, bad at everything else. But Lawton believed that he could win the war in a stroke if he was given the chance. At one point, he went to Otis's office and told him that with two regiments, I will capture Aguinaldo dead or alive. And Otis laughed in his face. This was not Arizona in 1880, and Aguinaldo was not Geronimo. Lawton, furious at Otis's disrespect, decided to talk to the journalists. The reporters loved Lawton, and he loved them. To them, he was the iconic American general, the romantic hero unfairly shoved to the sidelines, like the dirty Harry of the American war effort. He was always telling them, like, guys, how, you know, if I was in charge, things would be so much different over here. Everyone knows that guy, right, who talks crap behind his boss's back about how, if I was the boss, man, things would be different. Yeah, Otis sucked, true, but Lawton was one of those guys who thinks all the management parts of generalship are super dumb and boring, and combat is all that matters. And the journalists hated Elwell S. Otis. To hear Otis tell it, America was always on the verge of victory. The next battle would be the one that won the war, or the next battle, or the next battle. He had declared the war as good as won several times already, moving the goalposts like a champ. Very similar to American generals in Iraq or Afghanistan, who claimed that the fortunes of war had turned the corner at least once a year. The journalists wanted to call him out, but General Otis imposed strict press censorship. He claimed that any bad news that got back to America was the work of troublemakers trying to undermine morale back home. Any hint of like, well, the war's not going so well, oh, you're just trying to make trouble, you're trying to erode the war effort. He controlled the only telegraph line leading out of the Philippines, and so only positive stories were allowed through. So for the most part, the American public got Otis's version of the war. But some reports did get through, by hook or by crook, often sent out by sh on ships going from Manila to Hong Kong, where they could be telegraphed over to America without Otis's interference. One American headline announced, Conditions are most serious in the Philippines. The roseate view not borne out by a true statement of the facts. Another said, 
The failure of Otis to grasp the situation. Despite his protests, it is apparent that he needs more men. War correspondent John Bass reported on Otis's behavior. He sits in his office from early morning to late at night. He has never been out on the lines, and I venture to say that he has not seen a fight or a skirmish. Elwell Otis, the desk general, was hated by his officers, his soldiers, and now the media. But not the politicians. The politicians loved him. But if Otis didn't come off well in the news, sometimes America didn't either. The reality of this war was not exactly conforming to the American image. Atrocities, what we would call war crimes, are a part of every conflict. And American soldiers in the Philippine War committed multiple atrocities. Many soldiers didn't, but some did. And we won't see the worst of it until the very end of this series. But guys, American soldiers weren't supposed to do things like this. They were supposed to be noble heroes, little Captain Americas with stainless shields who obeyed the laws of war. But America's heroes ended up doing some really messed up stuff in the Philippines. Two letters, two letters were written that were published in newspapers that became pretty famous. In May 1899, a New York soldier wrote the following to his parents, who shared it with the media. Last night, one of our boys was found shot and his stomach cut open. Immediately, orders were received from General Wheaton to burn the town and kill every native in sight. About 1,000 men, women, and children were reported killed. I am probably growing hard-hearted, for I am in my glory when I can sight my gun on some dark skin and pull the trigger. Another letter from Corporal Sam Gillis of the 1st California, which was stationed on the island of Negros. We make everyone get into his house by 7 p.m., and we only tell a man once. If he refuses, we shoot him. We killed over 300 natives the first night. If they fire a shot from the house, we burn the house down and every house near it, and shoot the natives. So they are pretty quiet in town now. And you can see the justifications, the same ones used for many war crimes throughout history. They did it first. It was an eye for an eye. We needed to keep law and order. They shouldn't have misbehaved. There was also fear and paranoia in a war where the enemy didn't always wear a uniform, where overreactions were commonplace. And of course, good old-fashioned racism. Lots of atrocities were justified as payback for previous Filipino actions, such as shooting at ambulances, continuing to shoot after raising a white flag, and firing on Americans then disappearing into civilian clothes. One particular story keeps popping up in letters of an American doctor being tortured to death after the Battle of Manila, which many soldiers use as an example of Filipino br brutality to justify their own behavior. Now, guys, this is some pretty sickening stuff. And it does sound like this kind of stuff was relatively rare and possibly exaggerated at certain points. But it happened. And leadership and discipline made a big difference. General Wheaton, mentioned above, was well known for ordering villages burnt if American soldiers were attacked nearby. Like, Wheaton was setting everything on fire. And General Lawton notably turned a blind eye to looting and thieving. And of course, if you allow a few things, that tends to get the ball rolling into much worse things. MacArthur was a strict disciplinarian who did his best to run a tight ship and issued a bunch of orders saying, hey, don't harass the civilian population. But he couldn't be everywhere and he couldn't always control his subordinates. There were rumors of his one of his subordinates, Colonel Frederick Funston of the 20th Kansas, desecrating the Catholic Church. 
Funston denied these rumors, but they were believable because his unit was notorious for its lax discipline. His men tended to be just off the chain. It does seem like the less disciplined state volunteers were more prone to war crimes than the regulars. In the Philippines, like in most wars, low discipline equaled high atrocities. When the War Department demanded investigations, General Otis's usual reaction was to punish the people who had reported the atrocities for giving false statements. He couldn't allow any stains of reality to tarnish the image of his glorious war. There was a general attitude of sweeping anything ugly under the carpet throughout the Philippine War. And it was ugly. This was an ugly war on both sides, but Americans are supposed to be this idealistic image, right? At their mildest, the Americans tended to be jerks. There was a lot of looting, beating, just casual, normalized violence, just commonplace brutality towards random civilians. This went along with property destruction via burning or just sloppy use of firepower like artillery or Gatling guns leveling villages. Even if the hardcore atrocities like, say, rape or murder, were relatively rare, casual violence towards the Filipinos was fairly normalized, and the racism put a nastier edge on everything. Americans commonly refer to their opponents as insurrectos, or ladrones, meaning thieves, but just as often they use slang like goo-goo or gook, or a common favorite, the N-word. Lots of sources recall an infamous song, sung to the tune of Jesus Loves the Little Children. It went like this. Damn, damn, damn the Filipinos, cutthroat khaki-ack ladrones. Underneath our starry flag, civilize them with a crag, and return us to our own beloved homes. Yeah, I did like a hundred takes of that me singing, and it wasn't good no matter what I did, so I'm just gonna say it. You can put the tune to it if you want. Go sing it while you're, you know, walking down the street or whatever. It won't sound psychotic at all. Uh, civilize them with a crag. Civilize them with the crag Jorgensen rifle. We're here to liberate the Filipinos by means of a 30 caliber cartridge, just like God intended. American troops in the Philippines continue to suffer from disease, poor food, and pretty crappy living conditions. Otis's micromanagement failed to fix the issues, who knew? And the sick list skyrocketed, doing far more damage than combat. The stalemate continued, wet, miserable, muddy, and demoralizing. But there was some progress made over the summer. MacArthur pushed his front line a bit farther north up to the town of Angeles. American forces on the island of Negros and the Visayas finally began to turn the tide against the Catholic militants, the Babylones. And to the south, the army achieved an important diplomatic objective. The southwestern Philippines, the big island of Mindanao and the Sulu archipelago, were the so-called Moro provinces populated by Philippine Muslims. These were areas the Spanish had never really controlled. The Moros were fiercely protective of their independence and their internal affairs. Extremely difficult to handle, they had a long tradition of piracy and raiding. But on August 20th, 1899, Army Brigadier General John C. Bates forged an agreement with the Sultan of Sulu, the most prominent Moro leader. The Sultan formally accepted American sovereignty over the Moro provinces. In exchange, the Americans agreed not to interfere in the internal affairs of Moroland, including the worship of Islam and the practice of slavery. 
This didn't jive with a lot of Civil War veterans who had fought a war like 35 years ago to get rid of slavery, but you know, they couldn't really handle a Muslim uprising in the Moro provinces and the Filipino insurrection at the same time. The Moro provinces would stay quiet throughout the Philippine War and most of this series. The Americans occupied the old Spanish outposts at Holo and Zamboanga and against rarely any opposition. But we'll see what happened when the Moros stopped being quiet in the final episode. They were minding their own business and America was happy to let them do so for as long as the Filipino resistance was raging. After that, things would get difficult. In the meantime, the state volunteers were going home. Lots of army officers weren't sad to see them go. They had carried the war effort for its first few months. They had been brave and victorious, but they committed many atrocities and generally acted like a bunch of hooligans. But America wanted its hometown heroes. The support the troops mentality was stronger than ever after the Spanish-American War, and all the newspapers wrote about brave American heroes fighting a savage enemy overseas. They seemed to reaffirm that American image, reclaiming the lost American spirit by civilizing a new frontier against the hordes of darkness and barbarism. The state volunteers were greeted with celebrations, parades, and near worship as iconic American heroes when they returned home. A young teenager named George C. Marshall, future chief of staff of the army during World War II, remembered the homecoming of the 10th Pennsylvania. When their train brought them to Uniontown from Pittsburgh, where every regiment had been received by the president, every whistle and church bell in town blew and rang for five minutes in a pandemonium of local pride. The parade that followed was a grand American small-town demonstration of pride in its young men and of wholesome enthusiasm over their achievements. The Philippine-American War was popular in America. Especially in this early period, when all the news was good, when the ugly stuff hadn't really come out yet, when the war still looked like what Americans imagined war looked like. The newspapers told war stories like they were violent fairy tales, romantic dreams, the sacrifice of Colonel Stotzenberg charging that Filipino barricade is like, just like this, this iconic moment of gallant heroism against an evil foe. America was enraptured by the image of this heroic, righteous war because they were being shielded by military censorship, by the newspaper's patriotism, and by their own biases from the reality. Because pro-imperialist newspapers denounced and neglected any news of American atrocities or bad behavior. Anyone who reported such things were liars, borderline traitors for daring to criticize their boys in blue. Our soldiers would never do such things. These are lies. And even if they are true, they're probably all terrorists anyway. These are just boys blowing off some steam. You can't criticize them until you've been in their combat boots. In America, you do not want to be seen not supporting the troops. The anti-imperialists were still out there, still protesting the war as a violation of American ideals. But as long as the war still seemed to be going well, and still seemed to conform to that American image, the imperialists held the upper hand. And they included Theodore Roosevelt, who saw the war as glorious, a war of civilization versus barbarism, right versus wrong, good versus evil. Roosevelt was a man who was rarely uncertain about anything. He made snap judgments and held to those judgments, and he was certain about the righteousness of the Philippine War. In April 1899, during the height of the campaign to capture Kalumpit, Roosevelt gave one of his most famous speeches. 
called The Strenuous Life. It promoted an active, challenging lifestyle, the idea of American manhood in this time period. I quoted from it in part one to give an example of Roosevelt's worldview. And there is a lot to admire in this speech. Most of it is highly motivational. But Roosevelt related his ideals for American manhood, American strife, American challenge to the war in the Philippines. The Philippines offer a yet graver problem. Their population includes half-caste and native Christians, warlike Muslims, and wild pagans. Many of their people are utterly unfit for self-government and show no signs of becoming fit. We have driven Spanish tyranny from the islands. If we now let it be replaced by savage anarchy, our work has been for harm and not for good. I have scant patience for those who fear to undertake the task of governing the Philippines but I have even scatter patience with those who make a pretense of humanitarianism to hide and cover their timidity and who cant about liberty and the consent of the governed in order to excuse themselves for their unwillingness to play the part of men. Their doctrines condemn your forefathers and mine forever having settled in these United States. Roosevelt's speech reflected much of America's attitude towards the pacifists, the anti-imperialists, the anti-war crowd. They were cowardly, weak, unmanly. They didn't really like America. They didn't believe in America. That's why they believed Americans could do such bad things. And by criticizing the war and criticizing the soldiers, they were borderline traitors. You'll see lots of similar statements from this period, how if you're criticizing the war, you're helping the enemy. You're giving propaganda to the other side. And most Americans still agreed with Roosevelt. For now. The state volunteers had gone home, but they were set to be replaced by new regiments. The war in the Philippines led Congress to increase the regular army to 65,000 men, over double its strength before the war, along with 35,000 newly raised U.S. volunteers to finish the war in the Philippines. These would be the 26th through 49th Infantry and the 11th Cavalry Regiments. The U.S. Volunteers foreshadowed a new kind of U.S. Army. The state volunteers had been a throwback to the Civil War, but the federal volunteers called forward to the World Wars. The U.S. Volunteers contained many of the same men who had fought in the state volunteers. Entire regiments were formed in the Philippines from men who just signed out from the state volunteers and signed into the U.S. Volunteers. They just signed up for another term. All the volunteers received long training, including physical fitness, marksmanship, and tactics. And compared to their predecessors, they would be much more disciplined and much less prone to random violence. Note I said random. When it came to focused, policy-based violence, they would be equally brutal. With the new volunteers on hand by late summer 1899, over three-quarters of the entire United States Army would be in the Philippines. Some of these regiments were special. The 24th and 25th Infantry, the 9th and 10th Cavalry, and the 48th and 49th Volunteers were Buffalo Soldiers, units made up of African Americans. And their experience was so unique and so important that I am giving them their own short round next week. So look out for Buffalo Soldiers next week, same time, same place, on Monday, 6 a.m. But they weren't the only unusual soldiers fighting for the Stars and Stripes. Some Filipinos were willing to side with the Americans or even fight for them. Filipino historians sometimes call these groups collaborators or traitors, but this implies that there was a unified Philippine national identity to betray, and for most inhabitants of the islands, there just wasn't. They didn't consider themselves part of this nationalist faction. 
So longtime ethnic enemies of the Tagalogs, or political enemies of Aguinaldo's faction, sided with the Americans. The most prominent were the Macabebes from Papanga province, old enemies and you know, long-term, centuries-old foes of the Tagalog people. Many of the Macabebes had served in the Spanish army against the Philippine Revolution. Recruiting them was the brainchild of Lieutenant Matthew Batson of the 4th U.S. Cavalry. By the end of 1899, Batson was leading a five-company Macabebe Scout Battalion, the first but far from the last unit of Filipinos to serve in the U.S. Army. The Macabebes would prove to be some of the best soldiers in the war, and occasionally even harsher than the Americans. But the point is, the Americans were already starting to recruit Filipinos to fight other Filipinos. A very old imperialist strategy. You don't want your army to be formed up mostly of your own people. Is what the British did in India, what the French did in Algeria and Indochina. Use Filipinos to fight Filipinos. Outside of just recruiting forces for the military, Otis and his fellow Americans were trying to restore civil government, and this required Filipino cooperation. And a lot of them did participate. Provincial elites in places like Negros and Pane, urban elites in Manila, some of the Ilustrados, lots of workers and laborers hired by the army to repair infrastructure. In many places behind the lines, things were relatively peaceful by now. Civil government was already being established in the safe areas where something like benevolent assimilation could actually be accomplished. Americans were starting to build roads and build hospitals and hand out vaccines and build schools. So the Americans were making progress in the Philippines, and this put a great amount of pressure on Emilio Aguinaldo. The long string of defeats left him on shakier and shakier political ground. The Republic's internal struggles had led it to the brink of collapse, and General Luna's quest for control seemed to pose a threat to Aguinaldo's power, since many Filipinos saw Luna as the only one who could win the war. The danger Luna posed, not to the Americans, but to the political and social structure of the Filipino government could no longer be ignored. In June 1899, Aguinaldo sent a telegram summoning Luna to the city of Cabanatuan for a conference. But when Luna arrived on June 2nd, Aguinaldo wasn't there. Instead, Luna was confronted with Foreign Minister Felipe Buencamino, the man he had attacked for considering surrender, and the Cavite Battalion, which he had disgraced after the failed attack on Manila. Luna flew into one of his usual rages, ranting at everyone, but then as he turned to leave, one of Aguinaldo's loyal officers drew his bolo and slashed Luna across the face. The rest of the Filipinos closed in with knives. Luna collapsed, calling them cowards and traitors and assassins, as he bled to death. Buen Camino searched his body and removed Aguinaldo's telegram, the evidence that tied the president to the assassination. Luna's assassination and the subsequent purging of his loyalists was a fatal blow to the Army of Liberation. As one American general said, With the death of General Luna, the Filipino army lost the only general it had. Yeah, he was a temperamental loose cannon with almost as many issues as Kanye West, but there was no one to replace him. Luna's authority was one of the last things holding the Army of Liberation together the army began to collapse in slow motion. Many units of Ilocanos, Luna's ethnic group, returned to their home provinces like they killed the only Ilocano in the Filipino government. What does that say for the rest of us? Other minorities decided that fighting the Americans just wasn't worth it if the Tagalog supremacy would take their place, and they left too. 
Mabini and other leaders criticized Aguinaldo's obvious complicity in Luna's death. Just like when he had had Bonifacio executed during the revolution back in 1897, Aguinaldo secured his authority at the expense of the war effort. It was just one more entry in Emilio Aguinaldo's record of leadership failure. Unlike other successful revolutionary leaders like, say, George Washington, he let his quest for personal power shatter the unity of the cause. He utterly failed to bridge the economic, social, and ethnic divides that had fractured his government from the beginning, and failed to build a unifying cause to make up for the lack of Philippine national spirit. And his strategic mistakes were a major factor in the defeat, including his early naive trust of the Americans and his failure to secure Manila. Compared to people like Bonnie Prince Charlie of the 45, Aguinaldo's leadership is still lacking because at least Bonnie Prince Charlie won a couple of battles. But in the summer of 1899, Aguinaldo made one of his biggest mistakes so far. He decided to continue fighting the conventional war. Despite the unbroken series of Filipino defeats, and despite having recently assassinated the only leader that made conventional warfare even feasible, General Luna. Because the Filipinos were at a turning point, they had an option. Retreat into the mountains and jungles, fight a guerrilla war, refuse to fight any more stand-up battles against the Americans. Don't fight the Americans the way we've been doing, that's been losing. Go underground, prepare for guerrilla warfare. It's the only viable strategy we have left. But there were drawbacks to guerrilla warfare. Like the Americans in their revolution, the legitimacy of the Philippine Republic relied on keeping an army in the field, continuing, continuing to maintain some semblance of government. A guerrilla war would mean abdicating legitimacy to the Americans. The Republic would cease to function as a state. But the conventional war was impossible to win, clearly, and as the army fell apart, it only got worse. Historian Brian Lynn argues that Aguinaldo should have used the summer, during the monsoon, to transition to guerrilla war while the Americans were stuck in place by the mud, while he still had the chance to do that. But by continuing the war in the open, the Army of Liberation would sacrifice men and resources and time that could be spent laying the groundwork for a national insurgency. Problem was, when it came to strategy, Aguinaldo was just in over his head. He wasn't a great strategist, he wasn't a great general, and that was going to tell very shortly. Aguinaldo continued to prepare for conventional war as the rains began to dwindle in mid-autumn. The monsoon season was about to end, and it was time for shock and awe's last hurrah. General Otis and the U.S. Army were determined to finish off the Philippine Republic. Major General Elwell S. Otis had changed his tune on the strength of Filipino resistance. He spelled this out to Secretary of War Elihu Root in a message. A column of 3,000 men could march through and successfully contend with any force which the insurgents could place across its route, but they would close in behind it and again prey upon the inhabitants, persecuting without mercy those who had manifested any friendly feeling towards the American troops. Okay, at least you acknowledge that this is a dangerous enemy. So Otis's new objective, surround and destroy the Army of Liberation, 
This battle will end the war. The light is at the end of the tunnel. I promise. Just over this hill. Otis's biggest worry was that the Filipinos would do what they had been doing all year and escape into the mountains, living to fight another day. So his plan called for three separate forces to converge on his opponent. I have this in plan in a map, link in the description. General Arthur MacArthur Jr. and his 2nd Division would continue their advance north through the Luzon Valley, up the railroad, towards Aguinaldo's new capital at Tarlac. He was the hammer to pound the Filipinos with his artillery and armored train. To the east, General Henry Lawton and his 1st Division would move north rapidly, rapidly, towards Cabanatuan, spearheaded by General Samuel B. Young's Cavalry Brigade. Lawton's goal was to block all the retreat escape routes into the mountains. He was the tongs preventing the Filipinos from getting away, closing off all the mountain passes, and blocking Aguinaldo's escape. In the north, General Lloyd Wheaton would make an amphibious landing in Lingayan Gulf to cut off the Filipino retreat. He would be the anvil. Between MacArthur's hammer, Lawton's tongs, and Wheaton's anvil, they would crush the Army of Liberation and the Philippine Republic. After that, civil government would be restored, the Philippines would be nice and content inside the American Empire, and this silly rebellion would be over. The Americans referred to this plan as the Great Roundup, like it was a cattle rustle almost. Otis thought this plan was just the best thing since steam power, but his plan revolved around certain delusions. He envisioned his units moving at speeds they had never achieved in the climate and weather of the Philippines because he never left his desk so he didn't know the real conditions. Splitting up his army ensured that communication and coordination would have serious issues. And contrary to his previous beliefs, he now greatly overestimated his opponent. The Filipino Army of Liberation was on the verge of collapse. But Otis couldn't believe that. He needed his great big victory. He needed his enemy to be big and strong so his grand plan could defeat them. But Otis's biggest mistake was in giving the toughest assignment to General Lawton. The 1st Division would have to move forward along a muddy, almost impassable road that would require improvement as they went. Lawton's route would require preparation and planning, intricate logistics, lots of careful thought and management, none of which screamed Henry Ware Lawton. Otis ordered Lawton to get moving on October 9th, 1899, initiating the Autumn Campaign. And the advance was a disaster. Soldiers slogged through mud up to their waists, horses died of exhaustion, entire supply wagons were swept away in flash floods. It became clear that despite having months to prepare, Lawton had not organized his logistics or his transportation. He ran around like a toddler in a Walmart, getting in everyone's way, driving his men crazy. At one point, he took over a bridge-building project from his engineering officer. Like, you are stupid, let me handle this. Only to see the bridge he had designed fall apart in a storm. And of course, the Filipinos harassed every mile of the march. By the end of October, Lawton had taken four weeks to travel 20 miles. He reported, Everything quiet. Rain's over. Road impassable. River has risen some 8 or 10 feet. Small streams high and unfordable. Yeah, chasing Geronimo across Arizona was a piece of cake compared to this mess. And Brigadier General Samuel Young was chafing at the bit. 
Young was another Civil War boy. He had led a charge across Burnside's Bridge at the Battle of Antietam. And now he led General Lawton's spearhead, the Cavalry Brigade, consisting of the 3rd and 4th Cavalry, the 24th Infantry, a Buffalo Soldiers Unit, and Lieutenant Batson's Battalion of Makabebe Scouts. Young was supposed to be Lawton's fast-moving spearhead, but he was bound to the massive column behind him with all its supply wagons, like a drag weight holding him back. Young wanted to cut loose, leave the wagons behind, and race north, but General Otis refused. Nope, stick to the plan, stick to the plan, it's a good plan, isn't it? But then news arrived that changed everything. Emilio Aguinaldo was running. Aguinaldo saw Otis's trap closing around him and suddenly realized the danger. As much trouble as the Americans were having, it was impossible to stop them. It was time to make a break for it and disperse his forces into the countryside. This would mean lots of units would be cut off and leaderless, lots of supplies would be abandoned, lots of weapons would be lost. But these were the consequences of that lack of preparation during the monsoon. Aguinaldo finally made the decision he should have made months earlier, long past the point where preparation was going to help him. Aguinaldo ran. He and his family packed their bags and took a train north, where they could catch the roads into the mountains. With any luck, they could disappear into northern Luzon, an enormous, almost trackless area, where Aguinaldo could hide out and continue to run the war. But on October 31st, 1899, some of MacArthur's troops intercepted a message containing this plan. This intelligence discovery provoked a debate in the American High Command. What's our next move? Otis was like, stick to the plan, stick to the plan, it's a good plan, it's a beautiful plan, it looks so good on paper. MacArthur and Lawton were like, screw the plan, let's go get him. But Otis said, no, my plan was so beautiful, we can't mess with it now. So Lawton took it upon himself, finally using his one brain cell to give Young unilateral permission behind Otis's back. Go for it, man. Go north. Cut loose. Capture Emilio Aguinaldo. General Young told his men, the 3rd and 4th Cavalry, 24th Infantry Buffalo Soldiers, and the Makabebe Scouts, to live off the land. They stripped their load down to the bone with nothing but ammo, hardtack, and coffee. They would have to slash a path north through the jungle, the mountains, tall hills, and dark forests on their way to bag El Presidente. General Wheaton's brigade, the Anvil, was on its way to land at Lingay Gulf and if he could link up with Young's force, they could close the net around Aguinaldo, confine him into the central Luzon Valley, and take him. The enemy leader could be taken prisoner, and that might end the war. Young's 1,100 men set out on November 7th, marching and riding like demons, starving, soaked by the rain, filthy and sweating and sick. It really deserves to be one of the legendary marches of American history, even if it's forgotten today. The cavalry plowed their horses through rivers of mud. The buffalo soldiers forded raging rivers. The Makabebe scouts surged forward like hellhounds, eager to close with their traditional Tagalog enemy. The brigade made 120 miles in seven days through some of the worst terrain in the world, with one mission, catch Aguinaldo, end the war. And Aguinaldo was running. It had become a matter of days, hours, minutes, to see if he could escape the American trap. He rode the railroad north to Bayambang and stopped there on November 13th, making a declaration that we will get to. Put a pin in that. We're going to come back to that in like 20 minutes. Aguinaldo makes a declaration on November 13th. Aguinaldo, declaration, November 13th, callback. But as Aguinaldo ran, he left a disaster behind him. 
I'm reminded of like a sci-fi movie, maybe the 2009 Star Trek, where the heroes barely escape a dying planet. Because on November 5th, MacArthur launched his attack and the Army of Liberation crumbled like a collapsing building. Units panicked and fled, heading for the hills, vanishing into the forests. MacArthur seized Tarlock on November 12th and moved up the railroad like an unstoppable tidal wave, driving the wreckage of an enemy before him, the artillery and the armored train providing the plow. On November 7th, under the cover of naval bombardment, Wheaton's brigade landed on the shores of Lingayen Gulf, a surprisingly effective amphibious assault. By the way, Lingayen Gulf is the popular amphibious landing site for invading Luzon. It was used by the Japanese in 1941 and by Douglas MacArthur and his American forces in 1945 when they liberated the Philippines from the Japanese. But after Wheaton's amphibious assault was over, Otis's plan began to fall apart because Wheaton had no idea that Young's cavalry brigade was approaching him from the southeast. He was moving in the other direction. The upshot was that there was a gap between Wheaton's amphibious assault brigade and Young's racing cavalry brigade, a gap that Emilio Aguinaldo would have to slip through to escape into the mountains. There has been a lot of controversy about this gap since then, about whether Wheaton should have done this, or turned left or turned right, or whether Young should have turned left or turned right. There's a debate. But this is the problem with his communications. These two forces were separate. They didn't know each other was in the area, so they couldn't talk to each other. So the gap remained and Aguinaldo had his chance. Aguinaldo's escape was an exercise in misery, a tragedy, the final disintegration of his government. As he made his famous proclamation at Bayambang on November 13th, his infant daughter fell ill with a fever, and he had to watch her die. There was a hurried burial with barely any time to grieve before he was running east for the town of Pozorubio. He reached it on November 14th, but Young's cavalry caught up with his rear guard, taking Aguinaldo's mother and son prisoner. The U.S. cavalry came blazing into Pozorubio on the 15th, almost capturing the fugitive president of the Philippine Republic. Aguinaldo had fled into the jungle literally minutes ahead of their arrival. The American military campaign was wrapping up. General Wheaton defeated one of the last remnants of the Army of Liberation at San Jacinto on November 11th and linked up with MacArthur along the railroad on November 23rd. The hammer and anvil had come together. The Tongs, General Lawton's infantry column, were still stuck in the mud near Cabana Tuan, but they were receiving the surrenders of many disheartened Filipino soldiers. The Army of Liberation had disintegrated. MacArthur made his report to General Otis. The so-called Filipino Republic is destroyed. The Congress is dissolved. The president of the so-called Republic is a fugitive, as are all the cabinet officers, excepting one in our hands. The army itself as an organization has disappeared. But Aguinaldo was still at large, and he was still running. He and his party were soaked from the rain, climbing mountains and hiding in forests, and pursued by the Macabebes and the Buffalo soldiers. For all Aguinaldo's leadership failures and personal flaws, and I've gone into those, and despite being a pampered city kid from a wealthy background, he displayed remarkable courage and fortitude in this epic journey. Something like Bonnie Prince Charlie's escape from the British in 1746. One of Aguinaldo's aides described the escape. Strong wind and cold air made our teeth chatter. Our vision grows dim. Our legs and knees are already weak and tremulous. Our breathing laborious and our thirst intense. 
General Young's cavalry was right behind them. They could practically feel the breath from his horses on their necks, but his men and his animals were exhausted. Even the Makabebes were running out of steam. Lieutenant Batson had been wounded in a skirmish. Young needed fresh troops to continue the pursuit. He got a battalion of the 33rd Infantry Regiment under Major Peyton C. March. These were some of the new arrivals, U.S. volunteers mostly from Texas, and March was an outstanding young officer who would serve as Chief of Staff of the Army during World War I. The 33rd took over the pursuit from Young's worn-out brigade, a long line of blue-coated infantrymen climbing into the mountains. March and his Texan infantry battalion wound their way into the high mountains of northern Luzon, passing terraced rice fields and abandoned villages, hot in Aguinaldo's trail. They were hours behind the president, literally hours away from catching him, as they approached the narrow Tirad Pass, 4,400 feet above sea level. But Major March and his 600-man battalion were about to meet the legendary heroes of Philippine history. 60 riflemen under command of Brigadier General Gregorio del Pilar, the boy general. Gregorio del Pilar was 24 years old and already a legend. He had fought magnificently against the Spanish, including the famous incident where he disguised himself as a woman to steal a shipment of weapons. Aguinaldo took him under his wing as something like a protege, a younger brother. Del Pilar was and is the Filipino icon of the war. Young and handsome and charismatic, with tons of famous love affairs and romances, the stuff of like Harlequin novels. He wore a perfect dress uniform, spit-shined boots and silver spurs, his pockets full of scented letters from his lovers. Filipino historians like to compare him to Lord Byron or Casanova or Don Juan. And at the Battle of Tirad Pass, December 2nd, 1899, Gregorio del Pilar ensured his place in the pantheon of Philippine patriotic heroes. He and his 60 riflemen would stand off 600 Americans, 10 to 1 odds, in a battle remembered as the Philippine Thermopylae. Because everyone's gotta have a Thermopylae. Del Pilar's final diary entry read, The general has given me the pick of all the men that can be spared and ordered me to defend the pass. I realize what a terrible task has been given me, and yet I feel that this is the most glorious moment of my life. What I do is done for my beloved country. No sacrifice can be too great. March's men scaled the zigzag trail into Tirad Pass, well aware they were on Aguinaldo's trail. Del Pilar had his men hold their fire until they could see the whites of the American eyes, then unleashed a withering volley. Crag Jorgensen's and Mausers traded shot after shot over the nearly vertical landscape. Richard H. Little, a reporter for the Chicago Tribune that was with March's battalion, saw Del Pilar riding along the line on a white horse, exhorting his men, the kind of gallant hero that American images of war admired. But on the other side, what did that say about the stereotypes of Filipinos as barbarians and savages? Like, these guys aren't just crude terrorists, here is a charismatic young general fighting for his independent, the independence of his country. Somebody that could have appeared in the American Revolution. This is like their Alexander Hamilton, almost. Major March decided to outflank the enemy position, sending the 33rd Regiment's H Company up a narrow ravine to find a way around the Filipino lines. Del Pilar had his men construct barricades and trenches, from which the Filipino riflemen pinned down the rest of March's battalions. 
The Americans put their campaign hats on sticks to draw enemy fire, before blasting away at any Filipino who showed his face. The Filipinos rolled rocks down the pass to save ammunition. Hours passed as the clouds rumbled overhead, dark and ominous. Major March dodged bullets to rally his men, just like the boy general atop the pass. Company H climbed the cliffs to Del Pilar's rear, holding onto each other's belts at points to ascend the craggy slopes. Finally, at noon, the American flanking forces had reached the peak. They fixed bayonets and charged down the slope, screaming and shooting as the rest of the battalion joined them. It was at this point, or earlier on, depending on who you ask, that an American sharpshooter hit Gregorio del Pilar in the neck, killing him instantly. Little's account said, We who were below saw an American take deliberate aim. We held our breath, not knowing whether to pray that the sharpshooter would shoot straight or miss. Then came the spiteful crack of the crag rifle, and the man on horseback rolled to the ground. The boy general of the Filipinos was dead. The rest of the Filipinos fought to the bitter end. 52 out of 60 men died at Tirad Pass. March's battalion had lost three dead and nine wounded, but they had lost their quarry. The sacrifice of Gregorio del Pilar and his heroic 60 had bought valuable hours for Aguinaldo to escape. There are stories of the Americans stripping del Pilar's corpse and leaving him exposed for three days, before a lone American traveler finally buried the young hero. But this story doesn't fit with other eyewitness accounts, and it also fits a little too perfectly with other stories, like Leonidas at Thermopylae being stripped and buried in an unmarked grave, and the death of Jesus, his body lying for three days before his ascent into heaven. The Catholic Filipinos had a habit of turning their heroines into Santa Maria, and their heroes into Jesucristo. That was what they did to Jose Rizal, and now they did it with Gregorio del Pilar, whose gallant last stand became a Philippine patriotic legend. Aguinaldo escaped into the mountains of northern Luzon, but behind him the First Philippine Republic died. MacArthur's men spread out across Luzon, occupying all the major seaports. The Buffalo soldiers of the 25th Infantry occupied Bataan Province, an area with which MacArthur's son Douglas would become very familiar. Filipino forces were laying down their arms all over the islands. On December 10th, eight days after the Battle of Tirad Pass, Apolinario Mabini, the young handicapped radical who had dreamed of a mass uprising, was brought into American custody. General Otis declared victory, and for once it was justified. It had taken a while, much longer than it should have, but the Army of Liberation had ceased to exist. Aguinaldo was in hiding. The Republic's other leaders were arrested, assassinated, killed, or subverted. Shock and awe had prevailed. Otis basked in the glory of his great victory, reporting back to Washington that the war was over. And the McKinley administration was elated. Now, benevolent assimilation, the work of civilizing the ignorant Filipinos, could finally begin. McKinley declared... No effort will be spared to build up the vast places desolated by war and by long years of misgovernment. We shall not wait for the end of strife to begin the beneficent work. We shall continue to open the schools and the churches to foster industry and trade and agriculture. Yep, if this was the 21st century, McKinley would land on an aircraft carrier with a big banner saying mission accomplished in the background. The Philippine War was over. Right? Some Americans didn't think so. Henry W. Lawton might have been a reckless maniac, 
but did have a perceptive thought once in a while. On the evening of December 18, 1899, Lawton and his wife held a reception at their quarters in Manila. When someone asked him if the war was over, he pointed out that the Filipinos had not surrendered. They had not given up. He talked about his future plans, like how he wanted to go after, once this is all settled, I want to go look at the Boer War in South Africa. That seems pretty cool. Mary Lawton chastised her gung-ho husband. She told him, No, you will not, dear. You're going home with me to Southern California to pick oranges. The next day, General Lawton rode 18 miles northeast of Manila to a skirmish that had broken out at San Mateo. He took command of some forces pinned down by Filipino rifle fire near a river. One young NCO, Corporal Antoine Galjot of the 27th Volunteers, tried to recreate Fred Funston's legendary crossing of the Marilao River. Corporal Galjot swam across the river multiple times under heavy rifle fire, trying to retrieve a canoe from the opposite shore. He failed to retrieve the boat, but his brave actions would eventually earn him the Congressional Medal of Honor. A side note. I mentioned in my introduction to this series that I'll be pointing out the ways in which the Philippine War has touched my military career. When I went to college at 17 years old, I joined the Virginia Tech Corps of Cadets. As a new cadet, or a rat, I had to memorize the names of all Virginia Tech's Medal of Honor recipients, engraved on the cenotaph between the pylons overlooking the drill field. The first of those names was Antoine Galjot, a former cadet, separated from me by over a century. As a young man, I walked past and honored and respected that cenotaph, and I still do whenever I visit. But I never really thought about what Antoine Galjot was doing in the Philippines. I know he got his medal doing something there, but I wasn't really sure why Americans were in the Philippines at all. Now I know. And now you know. But Antoine Galjot's heroism was not the most famous event of December 19, 1899. General Henry Lawton was walking the firing line, a tall romantic figure in his white pith helmet, the gleaming icon of American empire, confident as ever. Then, suddenly, he clapped a hand to his chest. Blood spat from his mouth. Lawton sank to the ground, muttering the Lord's name. He told the officers that caught him that he had been hit in the lungs. Then he died. There would be no orange picking with Mary Lawton in California. Henry Ware Lawton was the only American general killed in action during the Philippine War. His death was treated as a national tragedy, with a massive funeral at Arlington and many tributes to his memory, including the modern town of Lawton, Oklahoma, outside Fort Sill. He was remembered for his role in the capture of Geronimo, and ironically, the unit that had killed him was commanded by a Filipino general named Lacerio Geronimo. The death of Lawton, the American romantic hero of the war, mirrored that of the Filipino romantic hero, Gregorio del Pilar. With their exit from the stage, the romance of the Philippine-American War was gone, whatever romance there was. From now on, the war would get darker, bloodier. There would be precious little glory in the days to come. Shock and all, conventional warfare, red versus blue, clear-cut battles you could see on a map, those were a thing of the past. The Philippine War wasn't over. The worst was yet to come. Phase one was complete. Phase two was about to begin. Emilio Aguinaldo, 30 years old, was about to flee into the mountains. The conventional war had failed. There had to be a change in strategy. If the Philippines wanted their independence, 
they would have to fight a different kind of war. On November 13, 1899, Aguinaldo made a declaration to his government and his people. This is the declaration I mentioned earlier. Aguinaldo ordered the Army of Liberation to disperse into the countryside, to break up into small units, vanish into the villages and forests and mountains, hide their weapons, and wait. Aguinaldo declared the beginning of guerrilla warfare. From now on, the Filipinos would wage a war of attrition, where they would hide amongst the people and strike the invaders from the shadows. An unconventional war. Their new strategy was to grind the Americans down in the swamps and jungles and mountains of the Philippines, erode political will at home, influence American elections, and force the invaders to withdraw. The Army of Liberation hadn't vanished. It had gone underground. Time for Phase 2. Not for the last time, the United States was about to learn that a conventional victory, a shock-and-all campaign, does not always end the war. They would have to learn a word that American warfighters have dreaded ever since. A word that clashes with the American image of war so sharply that we do our best to forget any war that it involves. A word that scrubs away the beautiful American image of war and substitutes ugly reality. That word is counterinsurgency. The story of the Philippine-American War will continue in Part 3, Hearts and Minds. We will see General MacArthur finally take command in the Philippines, only to confront a massive guerrilla war that seems unstoppable. The arts of counterinsurgency warfare are learned the hard way as America moves into presidential election season. And once again, everything hangs on the Electoral College. What else? Check back in two weeks for the Philippine War Part 3, Hearts and Minds. But before that, I have a short round next week. They had cameos today, but next Monday I'm giving the full treatment to the Buffalo Soldiers, African-American units in the Philippine War. Who were they? Why did they join? Why did they fight? And what do they think of all of this? See you next week for the Philippine War through the eyes of some of its most unknown soldiers. And until then, guys, thanks so much for listening to today's episode. I hope you enjoyed learning about America's most forgotten conflict, or at least phase one of it. If you like what you've heard today, tell your friends about it. Just don't laugh at them if they tell you their new crazy war plan that just might work. If you don't like today's episode, gosh, please do not lure me to a meeting where you're going to kill me. Much easier to just send me an email at unknownsoldierspodcast at gmail.com. Check out my website, unknownsoldierspodcast.com, for maps and sources. I'm on Facebook and Twitter at UNK Soldiers Pod. I want to hear from you. And if you're feeling super grateful, don't forget my donate button on my website. All right, guys, see you next week for Buffalo Soldiers and in two weeks for part three, Hearts and Minds, right here on Unknown Soldiers.